<laughs> anyway, <laughs> uh, turn to your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Hebrews, chapter 6, and uh, we pick up our uh, study in verse uh, 13. So if you're visiting with us, uh, it's not all cokes and jokes over here. It's um, uh, serious about the serious stuff, and here we are, serious about God's Word. Um, we preach through the Bible expositionally in here, which means we start in verse one, chap- chapter 1, verse 1, work our way through, and see what God has in store for us. And by the way, it's pretty, a pretty cool way to do it, because uh, almost every week, two or three people come up or email me or say something like, man, that was like you were just talking to me, and uh, that would be the Holy Spirit of God working in your life and aligning you with truth. It's pretty cool. So... Uh, all right. Hey, nice. So in place of the spittoon, we have a CD spindle uh, lid. Uh, pretty cool. So yay, we got you guys covered. Here we are. This is God's word. Hebrews 6, starting in verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having waited patiently, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray one more time. Father, may the truth be spoken and received here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we've all grown up uh, hearing people tell us, um, I promise. I promise. Will you do such and such? I will. I promise. And uh, some of the greatest heartache of the human spirit happens over the fact that somebody said, I promise, and yet they don't follow through. And isn't it interesting because uh, people will follow, not follow through on lots of things, but when they say, I promise, and they don't follow through, that's particularly painful, isn't it? And uh, some of you can look back on your lives and uh, uh, you say, yeah, there's some been disappointments over somebody saying, I promise, like daddy said he was going to come to the recital and daddy's meeting ran longer than he thought and then he got in, caught in traffic and uh, just like in the movies, he doesn't make it in time. Oh, daddy, you were going to come to my recital. You said you, would, you promised and you didn't come and there's heartache. Or it could be heartache even deeper than that. Do you promise to love and to cherish as long as you both shall live? I do. And then they don't. Well, what's a greater heartache than that broken promise? And so um, uh, we've all seen people in movies too um, futilely try to, to bet on a sure thing. You know, they, they go to some horse race or something like that in the movies and they bet on what they think is a sure thing because they got a tip about some horse. And, and uh, you know, then the next thing it's, oh, they're tearing up their ticket and they're so sad and all that. Or they're backing away from the roulette table in shame and disgust over uh, their loss and they thought they had a sure thing. In fact, we use that kind of terminology all the time. Hey, uh, you got that report ready for Thursday? Sure thing. 
We say that all the time, don't we? Oh, sure thing. Uh, hey, uh, are you going to pick me up at the airport on Friday? You bet. Bet on me, because I'm a sure thing. We, say, we use that kind of terminology all the time to try to amp up our commitments and so on, right? Well, we know that the, a, a promise made is only as good as the person who makes it, right? And since we're quickly seasoned in life, we know that uh, sinners, uh, of which we are all, uh, we all are sinners, we can't be trusted. And that ultimately, uh, there are very few things uh, in our control. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, is there such thing as a sure thing? Well, I have good news for you. There can be no surer thing than salvation in Jesus Christ. There's no surer thing in your human existence, in your spiritual life, than uh, what has been afforded you in Jesus Christ. Let's explore that together and look at our first point, which is full faith and credit. Uh, Look at verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, let's stop there. Um, Abraham plays a very important role in our first couple of points here today. Very important. Um, And so two interesting things about this straightaway. Uh, It says when God made a promise to Abraham, first of all, let's dig into something um, very hopeful and happy. All right? God made a promise. Just that statement, God made a promise, is full of profundity and joy uh, and assurance uh, that God could make a promise. Um, One of the horrid dangers of being around Christianity for a long time is you start to hear these things and they become familiar to you. And uh, we read, uh, you know, I read the text to you. uh, God made a promise to Abraham. We go, okay, God made a promise to Abraham. That's great. God made a promise, ladies and gentlemen. we're, We're supposed to be thrilled and stunned by that. Um, your soul ought to drink in a great sigh of uh, relief and satisfaction and assurance when you hear that because we have a God who can make a promise and a God who does make a promise and a God who must keep his promises, we'll explore. That changes everything about the universe and you, doesn't it? I mean, doesn't have, having a living God make all the difference? A living God who promises to do things for you and can't break those promises by his own self? That changes everything, doesn't it? Well, the second thing of immediate interest here is that um, the writer has just left us off. Uh, to, you know, we were in, it was Easter last week. We had an Easter message. So two weeks ago, the writer just left us off with a very um, uh, clear, stern, you know, scalpel's edge of a warning about the reality of the Christian faith. There is no in-between Christianity a person is regenerated, that means made alive, or they're not regenerated, that means they're not spiritually alive. There's no gray area, there's no incremental working toward righteousness in hopes that we attain a certain level where God will go, I like that, come on in. That's not a reality, that's not a gospel reality. You're either redeemed by the blood of the lamb or you're not. You're either saved or you're not. You're either given eyes to hear and ears to hear or you're not. And so the scripture writer has warned us about this and warned the original readers about this, but he's done so with a, with a kind of a, a scary warning. He's basically saying, hey, everybody, um, check your souls. Make sure you're not believing in some false gospel and make sure you're not plopped down in a church congregation somewhere uh, going like this, listen to the songs, eating the biscuits at the breakfast, and yet your, your soul will perish um, 
don't, don't do that. Um, to not be in fellowship with the living God, uh, to not know the one in whom you believe is to ultimately spiritually perish. Uh, great scary warning uh, that, uh, that went on for a long time, several weeks of teaching. Scary warning. Check your souls, everybody. And he turns right on the back edge of that and he spills out this wonderfully hopeful thing. He's like, that said, God made a promise to Abraham and it applies to you. It, it, it affects everything about you, all right? So it's a message of deep and happy hope, all right? Let's explore it together. Turn, if you would, to Genesis 22. We're gonna have to look at a few things here and camp out a little while um, because this is making a specific reference to Genesis 22. So Genesis 22, verse uh, 15 um, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. Then your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you've obeyed my voice. Now backtrack a little bit to the, the beginning of God's encounter with Abraham, Abram at that time. Go to chapter 12. This is where God calls Abram. Uh, 12 verse 1. So God approaches this pagan and uh, he's in Ur of the Chaldees is the place. And the Lord says to Abram, go from your country, go from your kindred, go from your father's house, leave them, go to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you And make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families, the people groups of the earth shall be blessed. Verse 4, so Abram went as the Lord had told him. Now, that's God's call to Abram. Uh, he says, I want you to leave this place and go to this other place. And Abraham does, Abram does. And he believes God. And uh, you see that uh, right from the outset, This guy, Abram, is supposed to be a conduit of blessing right from the beginning. It's not, hey, I'm going to fix you up and uh, give you a happy existence, Abraham. No, no, no. It's, I'm going to take you and you're going to be a conduit of blessing for the whole world, for the nations. Now flip ahead to chapter 15 and we'll see how this whole story kind of unfolds. And uh, in my view, you can't turn to Genesis 12 and 15 often enough uh, in your Christian life. Um, So much hinges on it. So uh, Genesis 15, verse 1, it says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. Listen, he's in his 70s. His wife is uh, also old, and uh, they don't have a baby even for a long time. They're, they're barren. They're, they haven't had a baby. They're super-duper old. They're past the age. And uh, uh, he says, uh, you know, I don't have any kids. I know you said you're going to make a nation out of me, but uh, uh, no kids. Uh, so what, how, how will this happen? I mean, an heir of my house uh, is going to inherit everything. And uh, Abram says in verse 3, Behold, you've given me no offspring. A member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. 
Now, that's a big thing. He's saying, you're old, your wife is uh, uh, postmenopausal, uh, sorry, and, uh, and uh, you're old anyway, and, uh, and you've never been able to have kids, uh, and, but I'm going to, uh, from your own body. And uh, he, see, he takes him outside, verse 5. And he says, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and God counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And Abram says, oh Lord, how am I to possess it? How am I to know that I possess it? And here's what God does. He does a really amazing, strange thing. He says, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And uh, what happens is uh, those animals get cut in half. And I know you go, ooh, except you're going to go to Swanky's later and eat those, and you'll have no problem with it. But, so the animals are going to be cut in half, and uh, they're put on each side. And what happens? Uh, verse 12, as the sun's going down, a deep sleep falls on Abram, and behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And um, uh, God tells him, hey, you're, these people that are going to come from your body are going to be sojourners and so on. Um, they'll, they'll be in captivity. Moses leads them out in Exodus later and all that. But look at verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring, I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadamites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, uh, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Now, that's really weird stuff. I know, you're going, wow, animals cut in pieces, big animals, small animals, all the way down to birds, cut in pieces, put on two sides. Uh, Abram goes into a deep sleep. He sees this vision and this smoking cauldron, this fire pot passes through the middle of the pieces. And we go, that's so weird. What a strange culture. Really? What's a fist bump? I mean, can you imagine walking up to Abram? Hey, buddy. He was like, what are you doing? Oh, okay, high five. High five, what are you doing? We have all kinds of cuckoo cultures. Let's shake on it. Shake on it. Some countries kiss on it. You know, in uh, Ruth and Boaz's time, you know what they would do? Here's my shoe. I just bought that property. Howard, uh, that's my property. Here's my shoe. That's our transaction. And as I walk back to my village, people go, oh, he must have bought something because he doesn't have a shoe on. (laughs) That's the tradition. And so here they make a covenant promise in this culture, uh, not uncommon. I mean, they killed their dinner and then ate their dinner, so it was not uncommon to divide something in half, put half here, half here, and then walk through it and say, if, I'm not, if, I, if, I, don't prom- if I don't carry out this promise, may what happened to this animal happen to me. That's what they would do. And by the way, you know when I go to Kroger all the time, uh, all the time when I go to Lowe's, all these places I go, the stupid pin pad signature thing. You know, I watch these poor people. It's like, Thomas A. McGillicuddy Esquire. You know, I'm like, dude, that's meaningless. It's a meaningless gesture. When that pin pad comes up and that lazy checker's done with her personal story with the sacker and finally hits the button that takes my credit card. I mean, I'm just watching her. I'm like, okay, all right, okay, great, great. As soon as it changes, I go, scribble done. 
I'm not trying to sign my name. I just go, la, 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 eh. It's the most meaningless gesture in our, in our culture, but they still want you to do it because where did I put my name on it? So we have a lot of idiotic gestures too. We sign our name and, and, and you know, before there's a retina scan and a chip in our neck and all that stuff, um, we have all these cultural things. Well, that was one of their cultural mores. They would cut an animal in half, walk through it and say, if I don't keep that promise, may what happen to that me, uh, may what happen to that animal happen to me? Well, so what's interesting about this, ladies and gentlemen? You go back to our passage. Um, in uh, verse 13, it says, When God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. And, uh, you know, this, this Abraham stuff is the basis for our discussion. We're going to have to return to it again in the next point. But notice, ladies and gentlemen, the extra measure that God takes to deal tenderly with Abraham. I mean, it's really beautiful. Not only is he God who cannot lie. God makes a promise. He's got to be true to himself. He can't suspend his justice. He can't suspend his truth. Um, He can't suspend his faithfulness. He continues to suffer long. He has to be true to himself. I promise that's as good as it gets. But he also swears an oath. And he condescends tenderly to Abraham and he, he relates to Abraham in a way that he can understand. He does a cultural thing that Abraham goes, okay, wow, uh, you swore an oath. Well, that means a whole lot. So, you know, when it, when it says, um, yeah, in verse 18, two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. He can't be untrue to himself, can't break a promise. And he made an oath that he also can't break because he's got to be true to himself. And so he gives Abraham this double assurance. He wants Abraham to really, really be sure. Now, little side note for you, and you've heard me talk about this before, but actually I love talking about it um, because it's one of the kookiest things in Christianity. Um, It's this whole thing. When you go before a court, do you you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help you God? And many a Christian has been so conflicted. Oh, what if I ever have to testify? I have to put my head on that Bible. Do you swear? You know, they have to put affirm in there. Do you swear or affirm? I affirm. I affirm. I don't swear. I don't swear. I'm not supposed to swear. I'm not talking about a bad word. I'm talking about taking an oath. People are like, mm. guys, if they, if they ask you to swear to tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help you God, go ahead and swear. I swear I will. Oh, what's, what's the hand on the Bible for? I don't See, that's another little cultural thing. Got my hand on a Bible. Don't believe in the God of it, but whatever. It's crazy. But folks, people get that. Let me, let me just jump over here real fast. People get that. I, I, can't, I can't swear, I must affirm, uh, they, that they, they put their, their righteousness in this vernacular that is so ridiculous. Um, we get that whole I won't, can't swear thing from the lips of Jesus. And people go, well, so don't go against my Savior. Chill out a second. This is from Matthew 5, verse 33. Jesus says, you've heard it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. So Jesus is commending some behavior. You've heard that um, you should uh, not swear falsely. Does everybody believe that's true? You shouldn't say false things or swear false testimony uh, and say something's true that it's not. Everybody agree with that? So does Jesus. You've heard that, says Jesus. He also says, um, you shall uh, perform to the Lord what you have sworn. So Jesus is saying, hey, whatever you said you would do for the Lord, you should do it. No problem with that, right? But then he says, but I say to you, 
So now he's going to the meat of what the law meant all along. Okay? He's not taking it to a new level. He's saying, here's what that's meant all along. Listen, I say to you, don't take an oath at all. Either by heaven for it's God's throne or by the earth for it's his footstool or by Jerusalem or for the city of the great king. Don't take an oath by your hair on your head and so on. What he's saying is, don't say, I promise. Stick a needle in my eye. That's what he's saying. I promise on the grave of my mother. I promise on the lives of my children. Just let your yes be yes, is Jesus' point. That's why he says don't take an oath. He doesn't say don't ever swear, you must affirm, you must choose some new righteous word. That's not what he's saying. He's saying let your yes be yes, let your no be no. Very simple. That's the essence of the law. Not not a little word switcheroo. He's not saying don't take an oath because God takes an oath. God swears, it says it right in our passage. Um, God swears an oath by himself. He swears by himself. He swears on his own head. Now, um, application for your life. Um, let me flip over here real quick. This is so cool, you guys. Um, this is in Ephesians 1. Application for your life. Listen to this. Um, in Christ... You, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now, friends, um, let me ask you a question. Do you know what it is, Christian man and woman, to be aware of the Holy Spirit's existence and presence in your life? Do you know what that is? I mean, it's very mysterious, isn't it? If you try to describe it to a non-Christian, they think you were the kookiest thing ever. But if you're a believer, you're like, I'm quite aware of the regenerative power of the Holy Spirit who illumines the pages of the scriptures, changes me, causes me to examine my soul in a unique way. I mean, isn't it strange where uh, you'll be living your life and you'll go, oh, 27 years ago, I said that thing to Bob. I hadn't thought about it in 27 years. I kind of feel bad about that. I think I may have to call Bob. You ever had that happen to you? What is that? The question is, who is that? He is the Holy Spirit of God working in your life. I mean, don't you sense the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in you, leading you, uh, illuminating God's truth and so on? That's the guarantee of our inheritance. Um, that you're here, ladies and gentlemen, today on a Sunday morning, interested in these things, that you would like to put yourself under the authority of the God of this book. What is that? Except the guarantee of your inheritance. It is the Holy Spirit who dwells in you, has made you alive, who compels you, who bids you come, right? Uh, you know, when I, engage, when I, when I proposed to Tammy um, and I bought the ring... Uh, I had a jeweler friend, and he got me a good deal on like a... It wasn't a big diamond, but it was a good diamond. And uh, that was his thing. I was like, how about that one? You know, there was a big black chunk of charcoal in it or something. I'm like, how about that one? He's like, eh, no, smaller, better. And so I'm telling you, I I bought that ring, and uh, after I bought it, I had $80 left. And when I say $80, I mean in my savings, in my bank account, in the seat cushions, in the car... I had $80, and I gave her that ring. And, you know, I was thinking about it going, uh, that's a better engagement ring. That's a, that's a more solid engagement than somebody who has 
isn't it? I'm like, babe, all I got left is $80. Here you go. If I had $80,000, i am like, well, I'll pick up another one of those at the trinket shop, you know? Um, oh, yeah, it was $80. I gave it to her. But what was that engagement ring? She wore it for six months, which should have been three. Actually, it should have been like a week, actually. Um, it's better to marry than to burn. But anyway, um, so, so, uh, <laughs> so, uh, She's got this ring on and she's showing it to all her friends. And now, uh, you know, everybody's being pulled into the vortex. You know, everyone's seeing it and the commitment, it thickens and, and deepens and so on. Well, what is that thing except uh, the guarantee? It's the earnest. It's the earnest. And the Holy Spirit of God is the earnest. Um, and, and listen, that, that's just a promise backed by a man. I could, have, I could still have blown it. But God, ladies and gentlemen, per this book, backs his promises by him self by his own nature. He can't be untrue to himself. He backs it by his own nature. He backs it here by an oath in a way that Abram can understand. And he does it also with his very presence, uh, the Holy Ghost who dwells in each believer. I mean, what is more sure than that? There is nothing more sure than that. There's nothing more sure than your salvation in Jesus Christ, ladies and gentlemen. All right, next point. It was you all along. And I kind of think this is going to blow your mind a little bit because it blew mine and, uh, in a great way. Um, there's another aspect here that, that uh, makes us have to go back to Abraham. And uh, that I want to uh, uh, draw your attention to it because it's so um, encouraging and is so personal. Uh, it, it's, such a, it's such a wonderful thing about God and the gospel. Um, in verse 14, look at it. It says... Um, it's, it, so the, the, the writer of Hebrews is citing God's dealings with Abraham. And uh, God says, surely I will bless you and multiply you. Now, that's another thing that's real easy for us to just kind of read over. Oh, I will bless you and multiply you. Oh, great, good, great. But listen, we read this in Genesis 15. Listen, God brought Abram outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them so shall your offspring be. Um, and by the way, you know what you know, the next thing that's said is that Abram, Abram believed God and it was credited, credited to him as righteousness, justification by faith. All right, and then the other thing that we read from Genesis 29 was this. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Now, here's the thing that's kind of mind-blowing. God takes Abram outside. He's like, let me give you a little sermon illustration here so you understand it. Look up and, uh, and uh, look, look up at the sky. And by the way, there's no like uh, Hernando de Soto bridge lights or anything to like mess up the view. You know, it's just, if you've been out in the country where there's just no lights at all, you know how that is, right? You look up at the sky and you're like, oh my goodness, it's like a zillion times more stars than you normally see. It just blows your mind, the vastness uh, of the stars of the cosmos up there. And so Abram's looking up there and and he's going, look, can you count those? Uh, Rhetorical question, you can't. Uh, And it, and, and it, it even goes past what you can see. You can't count them. Look up at the stars. The sand on the seashore, wow. Can you imagine all the white sand and dust and all these little grains and so on? Can't count them. Uh, The question, ladies and gentlemen, is this. As he's looking up at the stars, who are the stars? Who are the grains of sand? Who are these things? You know, when I, I, my whole life I've read this and I think, oh, you know, 
Israel. That's true. Oh, this nation that's going to come from you, Israel. That's true. But here's another question. Um, Jesus says this in John 6, 37. All the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So Jesus is saying, all the people that God gives me will come to me. All the people God gives me, they'll come to me, I will never cast them out. Who are those people? I'm saying, ladies and gentlemen, when Abraham sees stars that are too numerous to count, included in that picture, included in that symbolism at least, is you. When Abraham looks up at the stars and he sees the vastness, you're up there. You think about that the next time you look up at the sky. You think about that the next time you're walking on the beach. When Abraham looks up there and he says, oh, there's going to be this vast nation and they're going to be blessed through me, the conduit of blessing, you're included in that, in that scene back then. Is that not amazing? When the Savior died on the cross, he bore your sins. He died for you, for your personal guilt and personal shame, not your theoretical guilt and your theoretical shame, your personal guilt and shame, the stuff you did, the stuff you said, the stuff you failed to do, the, 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 the secret sins, the misdeeds, the dirty, gross, disgusting things over which you feel shame. He died for you, those things. That to me is such an encouragement. You know, when you, when you wonder if God is paying attention to you in your busy lives. And when you wonder if God really has a plan for you and you wonder if God is really working all things together for your good, remember that. Think about the grains on the seashore and think about the stars in the sky. Um, You know, it says in our passage here, um, look at verse 17. When God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise... The unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. Isn't it interesting? He makes the oath for Abraham. But the Hebrews writer is saying, God desires to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise his unchangeable character. He guarantees it with an oath. Who's that? You! He wants to guarantee it to you. He wants your soul to know that it's a sure thing, that your salvation can be trusted upon. And furthermore, if you want to just flip left a teeny bit, um, about an eighth of an inch to Galatians, if you're using paper, um, Galatians 3, verse 27, um, faith has come, uh, in Christ you are all sons of God through faith, for as many of you who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ, listen, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you're saved, you're saved. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. I can't imagine anybody reading that and not saying that Israel and the church are the same, or that somehow you have to smash theology down to, to kind of deal with the church and all that. I mean, the Apostle Paul's writing that. 
If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Same thing the Hebrew writer is saying. He's saying, hey, uh, he wanted to show it to the heirs of the promise. Now, I know he's got a Jewish listening audience, but ladies and gentlemen, that's us. And I want you to know that when Abraham looked up in the night sky, he was staring at you. And that's a much greater comfort that Jesus died for me, that he paid the sin debt for me. Much greater comfort than some nameless transaction in a foggy bureaucracy. Christ died for you. Last point. An anchor of the soul. Verse 19. Um, We have this. You know, check it. Uh, Oh, hey, by the way, let me back up a little bit because I'm sort of skipping verse 18 a little bit. It's impossible for God to lie. We have these two things. But listen, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Uh, To you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. You wonder where the hymn writers get their lyrics, the Bible. Um, But verse 19, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone. Uh, as a forerunner on our behalf. And that's where we're going to stop it because the Melchizedek thing will take us into next week. But ladies and gentlemen, um, you have these two unchangeable things as we mentioned in verse 18. It's impossible for God to lie. It's impossible for God to make a promise and break it. And then he makes an oath. It's impossible for him to break that oath. That's the thing that's this sure hope. That's the thing that is the anchor. Um, God makes an irrevocable oath he can't deny. He makes a promise he can't break. Now, it would already be wonderful to note that God's promise is backed by the full faith and credit of his perfections and that they are an anchor uh, for the soul. That's a huge encouragement. But it's more than just lovely thoughts. Um, the Bible doesn't give us petty sentimentalisms, um, uh, but definable and defendable truths. And so in verse 19, it talks about this anchor. Where, ladies and gentlemen, is the anchor Anchored, it says here, in the inner place behind the curtain. Here's another hymn lyric for you that blows people's minds every time. They sing it and they're like, that's weird. What does that even mean? In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. That's where that comes from. In every dark and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. That's where the anchor's hooked up to. You know how a ship drops anchor? By the way, that's what that is, that red stuff. That's a giant anchor coming off a ship, plopping into the water. Where does the anchor hook on to? Where's our safety? Behind the veil in the holy place where God himself is. The God who makes promises he can't break and and makes an oath he can't break. That's where the anchor's hooked to, behind the veil. It, It resides in God's own self. Is that not amazing? And, and, you know, um, it says that Jesus has gone before us as a forerunner on our behalf. And, uh, you know, we talked about that term forerunner before, author, perfecter of our faith, forerunner, pathfinder, a 
swath cutter uh, and so on. And you know, you read commentary helps and, and they, they love using illustrations like, um, oh, you know, a general may send a scout into the land to, uh, you know, scope it out, go, to go into land before anyone else. That's Jesus, the forerunner. Or another uh, illustrator, uh, um, commentator, old guy said um, that uh, a small ship, you know, if, if a big ship comes into a, a, a low area and they've got to wait for the tide to go up before the ship can pass, the, the ship will come into the, the area and they'll, take, they'll, they'll let the anchor out and a small boat will take the anchor and take it over the sandbar and drop it. So when it rises, the ship will be anchored and it'll just kind of float over here and the tide will carry it over. But the idea is Christ has gone before us. He's not dead, he's living. He's in the throne room of God. He's at the right hand of God. You're safe in this Christ. He's the anchor. Um, He's the Davy Crockett. He's the Lewis and Clark. Uh, Jesus went where we couldn't go. And uh, he is there now where we will go. Last thing and we'll quit. I don't know if the kids still play the tug of war uh, in the school. Your kids play tug of war, they still do? Well, you know, tug of war is fun, especially when there's a mud pit and everything, if it's like a real legit thing, you know? But I mean, in PE, we always used to have the big rope and we'd have a tug of war. And, uh, you know, I I don't want to offend anybody in the room, but, you know, they always try to pick like the largest human they could get to stick him on the end uh, of the rope. And uh, it was kind of an honor too, you know? And sometimes it was just a guy who was big and... uh, and sometimes it was a guy who was big and strong. But whatever the case, the principle was the same. Each side would do the same thing. They'd take the largest human they had and put him here and put him here. And the, and the principle was, even if we're weaklings and we can't make this thing happen, at least you got to yank that thing over the line. Well, you know, friends... Our anchor is Jesus Christ. He cannot be moved. His work cannot be undone. He is in the veil. He's behind the veil. It's permanent. When he said it is finished, it was finished. It is finished. There's no surer thing than your salvation in Jesus Christ. Jesus is anchored in eternity. His righteousness is accepted by God. Uh, He's in the very throne room of your life and he wants the best thing for you. And uh, he's eternally unmovable. His work is eternally undoable. And he did it for you, friends. Um, You were one of the stars and you were one of the grains of sand. And there's nothing surer uh, regarding your soul. It's good news. Righteous Father, we thank you for such a beautiful gospel and for such an encouraging message and um, for, for the way you know what we need to hear and uh, you say it in things that we can grasp and, and we just so appreciate it. And so I pray, Father, that you will steady souls this morning. I pray for this people that um, they will know that they're, that they're sure and safe in the Lord Jesus who is anchored in the throne room of God And I pray for the um, online listener today or 20 years from now or a million years from now. Um, I just pray that this hearer will see this gospel for the wonderful and beautiful and liberating and keeping thing that it is and uh, that they will love the God behind it. We pray all these things in the name of the Son, Jesus. Amen. Thanks, you guys. Much appreciated.